From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis, in for Martine Powers. It's Friday, August 2nd. Today, the search for America's last known illegal slave ship and the stories it tells us, and a surprising story of sisters and a serial killer. So I was recently at brunch with a few friends, and one of them mentioned that the Museum of African American History was doing research on sunken slave ships. And that's the first time I heard about Mary Elliott. She's the American slavery curator at the museum. And I really wanted to meet her. So we're standing in front of a plaque that kind of describes the abolition of the international slave trade here in the U.S. It was an act that was passed in 1807. But that law from 1807 didn't actually stop the international slave trade. So what the act says is, be it enacted, that it shall not be lawful to import or bring into the United States any Negro, mulatto, or person of color with intent to hold, sell, or dispose of them as a slave. People continued to be smuggled into the U.S. illegally and enslaved for decades. And Cujo Lewis was one of them. As soon as we get in the ship, they make us lay down in the dark. We stay there 13 days. They don't give us much to eat. Me so thirsty. On the 13th day, they fetch us on the deck. In 1927, writer Zora Neale Hurston visited Cujo in Africatown. It's the neighborhood that he and people from his community built in Mobile, Alabama. And he told her all about his journey. We looky, looky, and looky, and looky. We don't see nothing but water. Where we come from, we don't know. Where we're going, we don't know. When Hurston interviewed Cujo Lewis, he was believed to be the only person still alive that came to America on a slave ship. That last illegal slave ship came to America in 1860. The boat we own called the Clotilda. Lewis described what it was like to be on a slave ship, and Hurston published it in her book, Barracoon. Cujo suffered so in that ship. Oh, Lord, I'm so scared on the sea, the water. You understand me? It makes so much noise. It growls like the thousand beasts in the bush. The person who chartered the Clotilda was a big Alabama landowner named Timothy Mayer. But the story behind how the Clotilda ended up in America is more than just a story about slavery and a slave ship. It's a pivotal benchmark in American history, and it's the context we've always needed to understand how people profited from slavery and how we move forward 160 years later. So the story is that the mayors actually made a bet that they could bring in a shipment of enslaved African men, women, and children. And they acquired the services of a ship captain, Foster. A ship was built. Foster actually went over and was able to work out a deal. He's not doing it because he needed slaves to run his farm. I met Ben Rains on a loading dock right next to the Mobile River. He's a former investigative reporter for AL.com. It's a local Alabama news outlet. 
We went through the backwaters of the Mobile Bay and chartered some of the journey that Clotilda would have taken when it was smuggling Cujo Lewis and so many others into the U.S. in 1860. Why did Timothy Mayer make a bet for far less than he was going to have to spend to bring slaves here? I think he just wanted to uh, thumb his nose at everybody, at the federal government, at the Yankees, and he wanted to do something notorious. He bragged about it constantly the whole time the ship was sailing to Africa and back. So much so, there were newspaper articles written about it around the country saying the Clotilda should arrive soon. And when the Clotilda did arrive, there were newspaper articles all over the country saying the Clotilda smuggled in these slaves. 130 captive African men, women, and children. They ultimately brought in 110 to Mobile, Alabama. And some were sold to other sites within the area. And then the Mayer family, they actually took on some of the um, enslaved folks and had them working for them on their plantation site. While we may imagine the slave trade as this messy and unclear time in history, it was still a business. And for the 110 people on the Clotilda, they were purchased in Africa for $9,000 in gold. This was literally, I think I can do this. Let's try it. There's no more palpable slave story than this one, um, because you have, you know, slavery was always sinister. But to have these people who just made a bet and, and, and put other people into bondage to win a bet, you, you can't get any darker. Under the cloak of night, the Clotilda arrived in America just six weeks after it set out on its voyage. The ship came in through Mississippi to avoid coming up the mouth of the bay because at the mouth of Mobile Bay, there are two federal forts. And um, Mayor was worried about getting arrested because the penalty for doing what he was doing, bringing slaves in like this, was death. The captain, William Foster, cut the mast off the ship and transferred the slaves to a riverboat. The Clotilda was burned after that, and they thought that was the end of it. The ship is big in the local lore of Mobile. There's a huge mur- mural of it on the side of the highway in, in one place. And, you know, the story had captured me, this, this bet, um, and, you know, these people had gone and kidnapped 110 people for no reason other than to win a bet. But five years after this ship and the people on it got to America, slavery was abolished entirely. The people who were brought in on the Clotilda including folks like Kajo Lewis. They actually fought to acquire land from the Mayer family who had enslaved them. So once they gained their freedom, they fought to purchase land from the Mayer family. And from there, that is what became Africatown. What emotional significance does the Clotilda have for you? I can imagine in my mind, my ancestors coming over on this ship. Joycelyn Davis lives in Africatown. I am a direct descendant of Charlie Lewis. I am sixth generation. Like Cujo, Charlie Lewis was also a survivor of the Clotilda, and they considered themselves brothers. My family wanted us to just forget about it because I've told people there there was some type of shame of the story and how we came over. So we really didn't talk about it. I know I didn't talk about it a lot, but I knew. How does it make you feel now that it's an open conversation. I am not afraid. I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed. Because as you get older, you become more wiser. And I embrace it because of their strength, because they survived and thrived in a place that they knew nothing about. They know the language of the people. They did not know what they were coming into. 
So I'm proud of their courage. She says that finding the Clotilda would connect her to her history. And it also became a literal quest for a lot of people, including Ben Rains. To me, it would bring closure and it would bring uh, attention to this piece of history. And this is one of the really interesting things. Why was nobody looking for Clotilda? Ben got really serious about finding the ship. The first ship I found was not the right ship. Finding the wrong ship actually ended up being a really big motivator for Ben. We got the coordinates and nobody else would get in the water. So I put my wetsuit on, I got in and I was in about chest deep water and I could feel all kinds of stuff on the bottom. So I started pulling up logs and throwing them out of the way. And the, the guys on the boat were making fun of me saying, you just found a pile of logs. And eventually I felt something bend under my foot and it turned out to be a piece of wrought iron. You know, as soon as I felt it bend, I knew it wasn't a stick. And so I dove down and I wrestled the piece up and I held it up in the air and it was, had square nails sticking out of it, which are handmade wrought iron nails. Um, in the 1850s, we didn't have, you couldn't go to Home Depot and buy a box of nails. They were these uh, hand hammered nails made by blacksmiths. And it, they were sticking out of there and instantly that was definitive of 1850s ship construction. It took about a year for experts from all over including National Geographic, the Smithsonian, and the National Park Service to confirm it. But earlier this year, they did. They found the Clotilda. People, listen. We have a history of the world listening when the stage is set for our diaspora to make a change, a real change. Just the thought of that just gives me, it gives me chills when I found that they found it. And it gives me chills thinking about the voice that they went through coming over. While national news was buzzing with this new, exciting information, the community in Africatown had their own intimate celebration for finding the Clotilda. Because for them, it's more than just an archaeological find. It's a tangible connection to their ancestry and to the ship their ancestors came to America on. I think about my ancestors all the time, and it's their strength that keeps me going. I think that finding the remnants of the ship forces us to reflect on this history and think about the long-term impact of slavery and freedom, limits of freedom, during the period before freedom came after the Civil War, but also... Um, to think about where we are now and what still has to be done. Zora Neale Hurston's book about Cujo Lewis is called Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. And now, one more thing. A story about sisters. I am responsible for Ayala. That's how it has always been. Ayala would break a glass and I would receive the blame for giving her the drink. Ayala would fill a class and I would be blamed for not coaching her. 
Ayala would take an apple and leave the store without paying for it, and I would be blamed for letting her get hungry. Ayola is a serial killer. And these are the thoughts of her sister, Coraday. I wonder what would happen if Ayola were caught, if, for once, she were held responsible for her actions. I imagine her trying to blag her way out of it and being found guilty. The thought tickles me. I relish it for a moment, and then I force myself to set the fantasy aside. She is my sister. I don't want her to rot in jail. And besides, Ayola being Ayola, she would probably convince the court that she was innocent. Her actions were the fault of her victims, and she had acted as any reasonable, gorgeous person would under the circumstances. My Sister the Serial Killer is the debut novel of Nigerian author Oyinka Braithwaite. It's not really a crime novel. It's a story about sibling relationships. Ayala is a character who is killing her, her boyfriends and, you know, and she's got this handy sister who she can call um, after she's done the deed. Corday runs over and helps her get rid of the evidence. As the big sister, Corday is always there for her younger sibling. She does a lot of the things that she does for Ayala because she feels as if there's there's no other option. She has to, and she's the elder sister, which makes it even the burden even heavier because she has this natural um, desire to protect. You know, I've got three siblings and the eldest, and I could definitely understand how, even though your siblings will frustrate you, and sometimes you might not even particularly like them, you have to be there for them no matter what. There's this phrase about how the first child is the one that opens the womb everyone comes after the first child. So even from birth, the responsibility on the first child is a whole other, you know, you're expected to be successful so that your siblings have a, um, you know, have someone to follow, someone strong to follow. Um, some people talk about how the elder sibling is, is, is just another parent. You know, you can choose who your friends are. You can't choose your family. You're you're stuck with your family, and you don't you don't get to decide. You know how many siblings you're gonna have or anything like that. Like your friend can back away with, from you immediately. Yeah, nobody will know that there was any connection between the two of you. But a sibling, a mother or father, doesn't have um, the freedom to do that. I've always sort of believed that trauma creates a little cocoon between yourself and who else, whoever else experienced that trauma. So their father is a trauma that they experienced, and that's why nobody else can really get between them. Part of my desire in writing this was to examine this idea of beauty and how people respond differently to the way a person looks on the outside. Ayala is short, her only flaw, if you consider that to be a flaw, whereas I am almost six feet tall. Ayala's skin is a color that sits comfortably between cream and caramel, and I am the color of a Brazil nut before it is peeled. She is made woolly of curves, and I am composed only of hard edges. So I needed them to be different in order to achieve that, um, because I do think it's true that beautiful people get a certain sort of grace, and you know they're given a certain allowance that maybe you are not given. Because they look different, they've been treated differently, so they respond to life differently. You know, Ayala has realized she can get away with almost anything, so she's a person who's unburdened. You know, life, life is her footstool, and, you know, she can do whatever she wants, whereas Corridae has had to fight for everything. So she's a harder, um, less easy character. You know, it surprised me, actually, how many sisters have connected over uh, My Sister the Serial Killer, because it's such a weird book to connect over. 
because it's been women from different cultures, different ages who have, you know, who have talked about, who often come to me and talk about their siblings. And I did not see that coming. I didn't really think there was a book that was going to draw uh, siblings together. Oyinka Braithwaite's debut novel is My Sister, the Serial Killer. It was recently longlisted for the Booker Prize and is out in paperback now. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon. Our intern is Renny Svernovsky. Special thanks to Rex Ellis. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Nicole Ellis. Martine Powers will be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.